I invite you then to take your copy of God's Word, open it again to the Gospel of John, the first page of John. Uh, there are, uh, in the New Testament, uh, four Gospels that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the fourth of the Gospels. Uh, it is uh, n- not just last in, in order in our Bibles, it was also probably the last one written uh, among the Gospels, probably written, written sometime late in the first century A.D., John chapter 1, our text this morning will be verses 3 through 8 of that uh, first chapter of John's gospel. I want you, as you find your way to John 1, 3 to 8, to consider for a moment Taylor Swift. Those are words I never thought I would say to open a sermon, but here we are. Taylor Swift has been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year for 2023. She was also recognized uh, for the same thing in 2017. This year, she is named uh, Person of the Year because of her contribution to the arts. Now, I'm not a Swifty. I'm not a fan of Taylor Swift. Neither am I an antagonist. I'm really rather ambivalent about Taylor. Nevertheless, the fact remains that she has had a massive impact on the music world in this day. Her uh, tour that she's on, the Eras Tour, has already earned $1 billion globally and has been attended worldwide by over 4 million people. Some, not me, but some might describe her music as inspiring, authentic, original, moving, true. And their love for Tay-Tay drives them to buy her music and play it for their friends, buy tickets to a show and read everything about her and tell everyone about her. To be sure, Taylor Swift is not the first person we could ever say this about. We could have said the same thing a few years ago about U2, or Madonna, or Cher, or Nirvana, or the Beatles, or Elvis. Generational talents like this capture the attention of the world while also changing the landscape of music and, and, and impacting culture at multiple different levels. People are drawn to them because they feel alive when they hear their music. I have in my mind now like just replaying black and white videos of young girls at Elvis concerts. I mean, just coming completely unglued when he starts doing whatever it was he was doing with his hips. They love their performances and find great happiness in being entertained by them. Their lives are so shaped by these great performers that they'll imitate them at karaoke parties and drive hundreds of miles to see them in concert. Great fans become evangelists for Taylor and Elvis and the Beatles. One day, Taylor won't record any more songs. And one day, Taylor won't grace the cover of Time magazine. The life and happiness, a sense of meaning found at her concerts will become a memory and all the emotions replaced with nostalgia and we'll move on to the next big thing. Our passion for people like Taylor Swift shines a light on part of what it is to be human. That is, we are looking for fulfillment. We're looking for joy. We're looking for connection. We're looking for real life and what it means to live, and for something to tell the world about that won't eventually fail. Our love for Taylor Swift, our fandom, I say, I say our, some people's love for Taylor Swift, some people's fandom as, as Swifties, right, is, is, is not just about loving an artist, it's about finding a community and, and, and proclaiming a message to other people that's worthy of listening to. The problem is that Taylor Swift will die one day. And before she dies, she'll get old and people will stop caring. 
As we come to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, John is taking us back. He's introducing us again to Jesus. He introduces us to Jesus as the Word, the Logos we saw last week. And he introduces us to Jesus as the, in verses 3 through 8 of his uh, first chapter of his Gospel, as the only true source of life that cannot ultimately be defeated and will not ultimately be defeated. That source of joy and strength and encouragement and authentic life that is worth living, that won't get old one day, that, that, that won't be passe at some point, that won't just fall away to nostalgia. Jesus is the one true source of life that will not ever fail or be defeated. As we look at these verses in just a moment, I want for us to, I think, hold on to the main, this main idea that Jesus, the Word, became what He created in order to bring life and light to a darkened world. Undefeated life and light to a darkened world. We need to know this morning that Jesus is not only our Savior, but that He's also our Creator. John will introduce us to this. And having come to believe Him and receive life from Him, in the same way that people get all crazy about Tay-Tay, we must know and exercise the, the purpose of our living, which is not to be evangelists of musical artists, not to be evangelists of popular philosophers, not to be evangelists of popular people or or just people who are particularly famous, but to be evangelists, to be uh, uh, proclaimers, witnesses to Jesus, the true source of life and light. I would invite you as you're comfortably able, would you stand with me as we read uh, from John's gospel, John 1, uh, verses 3 through 8. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2, even as we begin. You can follow along in your Bibles and then we'll read uh, all the way to verse 8. John, the apostle of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus, the word, became what he created to bring life and light to a darkened world. Last week, we began exploring some of the philosophical influences in the culture of the Apostle John's day as he was writing this gospel. Particularly, we looked at groups like the Stoics and the Hellenists and uh, people like Philo of Alexandria and how they understood this concept of the Word, of the Logos in Greek that John introduces us to in the beginning of his gospel. And we saw how John is introducing Jesus as the Logos, that is, the eternal, personal God of the universe, the same God is the God of the Old Testament. This is how John is introducing us to Jesus in his gospel. Now today, we get to the next section of John's prologue, his, his, the beginning of, uh, of his biography of Jesus, and it is helpful for us to now consider one other worldview that may be in the background of John's mind as he's writing this introduction to Jesus. Now, that worldview is not any of the ones that we looked at last week. It's a different one. That worldview, that philosophy that may be in the background of John's mind is called Gnosticism. Just by show of hands, raise your hand if you've ever heard that word before, Gnosticism. Okay, several. Good. All right. Just want to know where we're at. 
see if there's, uh, if I, you know, how, how far deep we need to go. Unlike some of the other philosophies in John's day, Gnosticism is kind of hard to pin down in terms of when it started. Uh, for certain, it was around uh, it clearly after 100 AD, but it seems to be the case that the ideas that underpin Gnosticism, that, that eventually came together as Gnosticism, were already in play and already being batted around in John's day as he was writing this gospel. Gnosticism is also a hard philosophy to nail down because there were a number of different strands of Gnosticism, a number of different directions that this worldview took uh, and that were at play in John's day and even after, and a variety of expressions of Gnosticism. But there are a few things that are fairly consistent among the several groups. First of all, Gnosticism in all of its different strands is always based on a dualistic view of the world. Dual, two parts dualistic view of the world that sees a very stark difference between the spiritual and the physical, between uh, the, the spirit and the body, between the soul and matter. That which is spiritual, or as Gnostics would say, is divine, is inherently good and pure. And that which is material, especially even the, the human body, was considered evil. And maybe not evil in essence, but evil in that the soul, which is good and pure, is trapped by the human body. And it's the body that hinders the soul from being free to unite itself to the universal divine. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. It's a word we translate knowledge. The Gnostic view of salvation, put very simply, was to escape the material so that the soul could unite to the divine. And that salvation, that deliverance, comes through gaining special knowledge, gnosis. So for Gnostics, revelation and enlightenment were absolutely critical to their worldview, to their religion. The person had to be enlightened as to their true nature as a soul trapped in a material, wicked body. But once someone came to understand what the true nature of their existence was, well, then, then they could, once their soul was so illumined to this reality, then they could look forward to the release from the body when they died. The only trouble, trouble with Gnosticism, well, not the only trouble, but a significant trouble, is that this knowledge, this enlightenment that ultimately saves the person is ultimately and finally secret. Gnostics said that this knowledge can't be taught, it can't be revealed by others, but only received through unknown, unknowable processes. Now, the good news is, for them, once you have that knowledge, you're good. The problem is, no one knows how to get it. So it is perhaps with some arguing about these ideas in the world that John writes about the Logos, writes about Jesus, the Word, in these verses that we've read this morning, saying, first of all, that the Word is Creator. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 3 follows right in the stream of thought of verses 1 and 2 that, that, that are right before it. If the Word, if Jesus, is in fact the same God of the Old Testament, then He's also the Creator of all things. John just says this to us plainly in verse 3. Everything was made through Him. Apart from Him, nothing has come into existence. Just as John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 take us back to Genesis 1, as they both have that same opening line, in the beginning. So verse 3 takes us to the rest of Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. John says, the Word created all things. 
heaven and earth in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis 1, God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is a Hebrew way of saying everything. Uh, it's, not just, it's not simply saying that God made heavens and He made the earth, but it's a way of saying God made all that there is. And John says the same thing of the Word, of Jesus. He is the active agent of creation. All things were made through Him. The Apostle Paul affirmed the very same thing. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we read this last week. Paul writes, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. John says the same thing. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. Gnostics and others had argued that the world was not made by God himself. Matter, the stuff that we're made of, is wicked, right? It's evil stuff. God, who is pure and perfect, he can't touch matter. He can't be involved in matter. If he does, he, he pollutes himself. So Gnostics believed that there was another lesser, lesser created divine figure that made the physical world because the true God can't be, can't be bothered. It can't be polluted by that stuff. So another divine, sort of semi-divine, demigod created what we see in the world. This lesser God that created matter, Gnostics said, is not the true God, but it is the creative force behind the universe. Two ideas like that, John is very clearly saying in his gospel, absolutely not. Not only is the creator not some lesser God, some evil God, some semi-divine force, but the creator is the true and only God who is eternal and personal and who is not distant from the material world, but who from the beginning made it good. More still, this is not some secret, unknowable God who is far off from his creation. But John writes in his gospel to tell us that this, this God is Jesus and he is knowable and we can know him and he lived among us. John tells us that the Word is the Creator. And John says more about this Creator. He says more about the Word, the Logos, Jesus. Not only is He the Creator of all things, but also the Word, the Logos, Jesus, is Himself the source of all life. Verse 4 says, actually fairly plainly, which is helpful because a lot of what John says in his prologue doesn't always feel very plain. But he says very plainly, verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Word possessed life, and that life was the light for mankind. We could say just as plainly that Jesus is the Word. He's the source of all life and light. But maybe we could say just a bit more. When John says that the Word possessed life, in Him was life, he is saying more than just that the Word is living. He's saying more than just that Jesus is alive. He is saying that life comes from the Word who is the Creator. There were two words commonly used in the Greek language in which John wrote for the word life. Those two terms in Greek are bios and zoe. Bios is the word from which we get terms like biology and biometrics. Bios, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but bios has something to do with the speeds and feeds of life. The, the processes by which we can say something is alive. But John never uses bios to talk about life in his gospel. Only zoe. Zoe is life in its physical sense, sure. Plants, animals, humans, all alike can be said to have zoe, life. 
But zoe has a sort of meaning that transcends the speeds and feeds of biological processes more than just lungs breathing, hearts beating. Zoe goes deeper to, or drives deeper to the, the idea of purpose for life, intention in life, the direction of life. So when John says that in him, in the Word, in Jesus was life, what he is saying is that the Word that Christ possessed in himself, what it means not just to be alive, but what it means to really live. Later in his Gospel, John will record Jesus saying things like, John 3.36, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Zoe ionion. Life forever, life of the ages. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Speaking of himself as the good shepherd, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus talking to Martha, whose brother Lazarus had been dead in a tomb for three days, says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What it means to live, John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. What it means to live is light, John says. Now, John will use this word light all throughout his gospel in contrast to darkness and in connection with life and truth. Once you see it and you start reading John's gospel, you'll never unsee it. It's not altogether different from the way that we describe, at least the way that John is using it, not altogether different from the way that we describe understanding a new idea. We say things like, the light finally came on, right? And I understood that. Or it dawned on me, using the image of the sun cresting over the horizon and, and, and shedding light on all of our surroundings. It dawned on me that, you know, fill in the blank. We speak about being enlightened in terms of understanding things for the first time. Light brings an understanding to the world uh, or to things that exist in darkness. Light shows what was previously unseen. It reveals what was previously hidden. All through his gospel, John uses light as a stand-in, as a replacement for the concept of revelation, illumination, a clear perception of what is true. So, follow John here. If Jesus has life, and that life is the light of men, then what John is saying is something like, Jesus who, who is who life originates in. That's where life starts, in Jesus. And the life that he has in himself is what he gives so that mankind can clearly understand who they are and what they need most. To have life from Jesus and in Jesus is to see clearly what it means to truly live. In this way, Jesus does not become some sort of, he's not some sort of figurative light. He's not an illuminator of truth. He is, as one scholar has clearly said, he is the true light. He's the one that brings true knowledge and true perception, reveals perfectly all what was hidden or unseen. In Jesus, there is, well, there is no knowing truth and there is no having life apart from Him, who is the source of life and light. So then John says that this light has shone into the darkness. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. By darkness, John means the world of humanity living apart from 
the source of life, living apart from God, living apart from the Creator, living apart from the Word. And that darkness has, as he says very triumphantly, has not overcome the light. Life and light and truth all prevail in Jesus. They all dominate in Jesus. Because He's the Creator of all things, He's also the sovereign ruler over all things, even in spite of the intention for some people to remain in darkness, to remain living away from the light. Put slightly differently, John could have said that the darkness could not stop the light from revealing what is true. The darkness could not stop the light from revealing what is true. Some of your translations may say that the darkness did not comprehend the light. And that translation is probably fine. There's, there's hardly one English word that perfectly in, encapsulates what any ancient word may have implied. But the point is this. Jesus, the source of all light, Jesus, the true light that reveals what it means to really live, could not be stopped. Amen. Could not be ruled. He could not be hindered by sin or ignorance or rebellion or any evil force opposed to him. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now you may have noticed a little pattern in verses four and five, a pattern that goes life, life, light, light, darkness, darkness. In him was life, the life, in him was life, The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not understood it. Life, life, light, light, darkness, darkness. In doing this, John is actually, he's not just repeating himself like he he has nothing better to say or doesn't know how to say it well. John is actually tucking a, a little logical chain argument into what he's saying here. It goes something like this. Jesus possesses life. That life is what illuminates all humanity, as to what it means to really live. That light has entered into, has broken into the darkness of this world, living apart from relationship with Christ, and the darkness, all that is opposed to God, all that is opposed to the Creator, everything that is is in opposition to or separate from Him, could not overcome the aggressive nature of the light of the Word. Therefore, darkness cannot defeat life. And the way to life is by being found in the light. It's a little thing. That it's, it's, there's a lot there, but it's what John is saying as he says, life, life, light, light, darkness, darkness. Where John's prologue confronts the error of Gnostics in his own day is this, that enlightenment and salvation do not come by a secret, unknowable process of receiving revelation but that an understanding of what we need to know what it really means to live, an understanding of what we need to know true life comes from the knowable and personal source of all life. To be enlightened is not to have secret knowledge. To be enlightened is to know a specific person, Jesus, the Word, who is God, John says. And here's the kicker. If you don't know Jesus you're still in darkness. John says that just as plainly. If you don't know Jesus, you're still living in darkness. You're still living in death. You're still living apart from relationship to your Creator. In John 3, verses 18 through 21, Jesus in His nighttime discourse with the Pharisee Nicodemus says this, whoever believes in Him, in the Son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus, in conversing with some of his opponents, said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the Word who is the Creator. He is the Word who is the source of all life, who enlightens us to what it is to really live, which is to be in relationship with our Creator, whom we can know. John tells us also that the Word is the light that a different John pointed to. Verses 6 through 8. The Word is the light that John pointed to. We read there in those verses, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, cousin of Jesus. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. As we come to the last three verses of our text today, John shifts his attention from Jesus, the Word, the Logos, to another person, John the Baptist. It's important to know that John the Gospel writer and John the Baptist are not the same John. And two different Johns here. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus who came preaching a message of repentance from sin, a message of preparation, personal preparation for the coming of the Messiah. John the Gospel writer, just in case some were in danger of thinking that the baptizer was the Messiah, stops everyone here to say, definitely not. If you're looking to John the baptizer for light and life, you're looking in the wrong place. Don't get it confused. Rather, through use of parallel and repeating statements, John says very plainly, the baptizer came only as a signpost, only as a witness. That was his job. And to be a specific witness about who the light is. John is not the light, the gospel writer tells us. And life doesn't come through John the Baptist. But you can learn everything you need in order to know who the light is by looking at John and looking to who he points to. When we see John the Baptist later in John's gospel, actually just later in chapter 1 of John's gospel, we see John the Baptist doing precisely what John the gospel writer says he came to do. The baptizer's whole message in John 1 verses 19 through 35 is essentially this, to everyone who's coming to him, I'm not the one you've been waiting for. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. That guy is. That's what John does at every single turn. I'm not him. He is. Even John's final words recorded in John 3, verse 30, John the Baptist's final words were this, recorded in John's gospel anyway. He, speaking of Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. My job is to make him great. My job is to point him out. My job is to turn people's eyes to the light to the life. John the baptizer understood his job to point people to the light, to the life who is none other than Jesus. This wasn't just John the baptizer's job. It was his purpose. It's what he was born to do. It's what God made John to do with his life, to point to Jesus. So that as John 1 verse 7 says, all might believe Jesus because of John's testimony. 
two things become evident to us here. First, in order to know life, in order to have the light of life, you must first believe Jesus. You must first trust Him. You must depend on Him in an ongoing way. Now, there are countless examples of the connection between belief, between faith in Jesus and life in John's gospel. And once you start seeing the connection between faith and life, between belief and living, you can't stop seeing it in John's gospel. But here's just a small sampling. John 3, 13 to 16. Again, that nighttime discourse with Nicodemus. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man, speaking about himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have life. For God loved the world in this way that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Belief leads to life. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but He has passed from death to life. John 6, verses 35 and 40, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. To know life, to know the light that Jesus brings, to know what it means to really live as God in Christ has made us to really live, you must know Jesus. You must believe Him. You must trust Him. And it's not just believing that Jesus was born and died and was raised again, but trusting in Jesus to, by his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, trusting in Jesus to do everything for you that you cannot do for yourself. To know life, you must believe Jesus. That was John the baptizer's whole life purpose. I'm not the guy, he is. To know life, you must know him. But second, the life of John the Baptist, and just a short reference to it by John the gospel writer, tells us that once you know and trust Jesus, once you've come to believe in Him and receive the life that He's given to you, your purpose in living comes right in, law, right in line with John the Baptist and right in line with the light of the world Himself. True life is found in knowing Jesus. And in knowing Him, we come to love He who is true light. And in loving Him, we love what He does. And in loving what He does, we point others to Him so that He can do what only He can do in them. If you pressed me to say that more plainly, I might say it like this. John the baptizer's life of giving witness to Jesus becomes our life. His purpose becomes our purpose when we come to believe the one that he pointed to. When we come to trust in Jesus. Jesus is the source of all life and light. The creator of all things in whom life is found. Now, after saying all that and looking at these verses, you're asking yourself again for the second week in a row, what, Stephen, does any of that have to do with Christmas? Well, first, because Jesus, the Word, the Logos, because He's the creator of all things, understand what this means, that Jesus is not like the God of the Gnostics, who's distant from the created world so as to remain undefiled by it. Rather, Jesus is the creator God of the universe who at Christmas stepped into creation and clothed himself with humanity. The very flesh that the Gnostics despised, Jesus, the Word, took on 
in order to save creation. Friends, hear me. Jesus, the Word, is not afraid of sinful humans. Neither is He grossed out by the ickiness of flesh and bones and muscle and blood. No, friends, He created all that we are. And as Genesis says, when He made it, He declared it very good. John is telling us that the Logos, our Maker, Jesus the Christ, values humanity such that He is willing to enter into our existence in order to save us. He's become one of us in order to redeem us. This Jesus, even more than being willing to take on human nature to save us from sin, would endure human death to pay for our sins against Him. The God of the Scriptures, friends, is like no other God of the human imagination. He is unlike those gods because He's not imagined, but He's real, He's true. He's not far off, but He's attentive to our cries for help. And He is ready to rescue us from peril. The Creator at Christmas steps into His creation in order to redeem it. This has everything to do with Christmas, secondly, because at Christmas, the author of life, the true light Himself, made Himself known to us. Jesus is not like the Gnostic God who stands far off, withholding knowledge that can save, leaving humans to their best attempts to find it on their own. Far from it. Jesus is the creator of uh, and light of life who at Christmas said plainly to the whole world in a human voice, here I am. This is who I am. This is what the life I made you to have is meant to look like. Let me open your eyes. Let me help you see through the black night of sin and brokenness in this world so that you can know me, so that you can have life with me, so you can have life in me, through me, because of me. Jesus comes in skin and bones with muscle and flesh and blood to say, this is the way to life. Jesus began that first Christmas to do what the Father sent him to do. You remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus at night in John 3.16. I already read it once today. God loved the world in this way. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Eternal zoe, a a life of the ages and a life for the ages. A life that is rooted in the very Creator of all things who is Himself without time. My dear friend, have you come to Jesus to be forgiven of sin? To believe in Him and have life? To know life in the manner that God intended for you to have, which is more than just living. It's living in relationship with your Creator. Jesus was born at Christmas. He lived the perfect life in your place. He died for your sins, and He was raised from the dead to give you life that only He can give. The call to you is the same call that John the Gospel writer is giving in his Gospel. Would you trust Him? Would you believe Him? Would you receive the life and light that He has and that He gives and that He is by trusting in Him? If you've come to know and trust Jesus and you celebrate in all of the glory and mystery of Christmas, the question is then for you, Christian, would you, like John the baptizer, would you tell somebody about it? His whole life's purpose was to point to the one greater than him. His whole life's purpose was to say, I'm not the guy. I'm not the fixer. He is. I'm not the redeemer. He is. Even now, I'm sure there's a face. There's a a name of someone that you know who has not yet come to know the life and light of the world, Jesus the Christ. 
When you begin, would you now today begin planning to have a conversation about Jesus with that person this Christmas season? Would you begin planning your John the Baptizer kind of moment? Now, I'm not telling you to go wear camel skin and eat locusts and baptize people in the river. But would you, would you be even now planning to be as John in the world to someone else who doesn't know Jesus to say, I know the fixer, I know the redeemer, I know the, the creator who took on creation to save us. His name is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that opportunity to point other people to Jesus is built right into this holiday season. That our whole nation, that, that the whole world is celebrating right now. Let us look for, let us plan to make opportunity to be living, active, vocal, witnesses to the word made flesh and the hope of life in his name this season. Amen. Jesus, the creator of all things, the source of true light and life has come into the world, has come into his creation to redeem it all. And as we are saved by him, as we know life by believing in him, so he makes us to be his living signposts to say, there's the guy. He's him. He's the one who can fix it. He's the one who came to save you. He's made us to be living light posts, living mirrors of his glory in the world, his majesty in the world. And we have all that opportunity built right into this holiday that carries his name, Christmas. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. We have all sorts of opportunity to talk about what Christmas is all about, what you and your family are doing this Christmas as you're worshiping in church, and why, and not just that you're worshiping in church, but why you do, what it is that as a church you're celebrating at Christmas, the Creator who becomes part of His creation in order to redeem all of it. I'd love to tell you about that. Come with me to our Christmas Eve service. We all know people who need to be pointed to Jesus one more time for redemption. And we who have come to light and life by believing in Christ. We have this calling, we have this purpose laid upon us to do the same, to point others to him. You may have done it a hundred times already for that coworker, for that family member. You may have talked about the gospel till you're blue in the face and all prayed out for that person. This is at least one more opportunity to do it again. Would we embrace the purpose of our living, which is to point people to Jesus this Christmas season? I pray that we will. I pray that we will. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table, this place where we remember not Christ's birth, but His death and ultimately His resurrection, which has brought us forgiveness of our sins. The, the, the good news of Christmas isn't, isn't good news until we get to the crucifixion and to the resurrection. Uh, Jesus, in being born a human, doesn't redeem all of creation just by being born. He lives a life without sin in our place. He dies on the cross to pay for our sins in our place, and he's raised from the dead in glory and victory so that all who trust in him and have life in him will also have resurrection life in him. We have opportunity to come to this table today to rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, not only in being born for us, but dying for our sins and being raised from the dead as well.